Welcome to episode 3078 of the Survival Podcast. Uh, it's something I've threatened to do for the last six weeks as we went through the Permaculture Design Science series. Uh, the original version of that series was five episodes, and I said I might add a sixth. I got up this morning and thought, yeah, I'm not done yet. Let's, let's go ahead and add that sixth. And it is the one that I've promised you, the eight forms of capital. And it's something we've talked about before, but I don't know if we've ever integrated it into a series specifically on permaculture before, and we're going to do that today. Um, this one won't be like the other ones if you're watching the video. Uh, I won't be using a lot of visual support here. I will show you the original article that came from. I, I do deeply believe in the importance of sourcing things that were created by someone else. I, I never heard of this before until 2012. And it was originally written by Ethan Rowland uh, of Appleseed Permaculture. And I want to actually bring up that article for you today. I hear various people discuss this concept today, uh, most notably Chris Martinson. And I seldom hear the people that talk about this mention Ethan Rowland and uh, Gregory Lunda, who both contributed to this back in 2011. Again, I first discovered it in 2012. But Ethan was really the originator of the idea, from my understanding. He's the one who put out this wonderful article. Uh, I, I do have his graphic pulled into my show notes today, and it's sourced. And I, I just think that in addition to this, it would be a good idea to read this entire article for yourself and take a look at the different graphics, uh, and, and then let that expand for you on the situation. And you will find today that there are, I'm not lockstep here with everything Ethan's saying about this stuff, but I do believe this is a really brilliant way to break down value in the world and the concept that is capital and what capital is. And I, I just find it really important, and it's kind of my little shout-out, PSA call it here, uh, at the beginning of this. Uh, episode today. Please, if you're going to get into podcasting, content creation, etc., and you're going to take something that's like this, something that hasn't been said a million times, so sourcing it's not possible, something that somebody actually took the time, sat down, and created, please source it. Please give the content creator who originally put it up the credit that's due to them. And as you build an audience of your own and you're using other people's material, I think it's important to give back, uh, to source this information. Again, I've seen this done, and I've seen this talked about so much. And I'm sure there are some people that they're innocent in it. They have no idea where it originated. They just heard about it somewhere. But there's some people who I know know where it came from, and they literally are presenting the material I'm going to give you today as though they're the source of it. I've given you the source again, uh, Ethan Rowland, Appleseed Permaculture. Please read the article, and please give the guy some love with whatever he's doing in life now. I, this is really the only 
piece of his work that I'm familiar with, and I, I really do appreciate his contribution to society in giving us this. With that, before I dig into Eight Forms of Capital, let's go ahead and remind you about our sponsors of the day. I got two for you today, like I do most days. Number one, Start Nine Embassy Servers. Tomorrow, I'm going to have a guest on name, uh, Joel Valenzuela. We're going to be talking about digital censorship and financial censorship. One of the things you can do about that is do things like running your own Bitcoin node or your own Bitcoin Lightning node. Uh, use your own server to manage your passwords. Use your own server to uh, share files and to store files. And it's not that hard. If I didn't have to unplug it to do it, I'd show you my Start9 server. It's right behind me. Right there I have my hand on it. It's about the size of a deck of cards. Really simple to set up. It does take a little bit of a learning curve. Uh, but if you'll do the work for a day or two, you can completely take control of your digital life. And so I really recommend you check out Start9.com. If you're an MSB member, do not forget to use the discount code when you buy from Start9 because it will pay for your membership for multiple years. Uh, we have the biggest discount there is with Start9 of any program out there. Um, sometimes people say they join my membership program just to contribute. Hey, I appreciate that, but don't walk away from that kind of money. Uh, if you're buying the top-end product, it's, it's well over uh, three years of membership paid back in one discount. Next up, if you care about money and you don't hate money and you want to invest money long-term and you care about your capital and you want to build capital, you want to work with an investment advisor, an investment manager, who understands what we're talking about today, not just the financial side, but social capital and prepping and, and permaculture and the value of having systems and knowing how to do things and having skills, putting it all together along with excellent financial advice. You want to check out John Pugliano at the Wealth Studying Podcast. You can find, at, find John and more about him and get his podcast and all his great advice at wealthsteading.com. With that, let's jump on into it um, again. This is originally Ethan Rowland's work, and I, I, I do think he deserves a great deal of, of credit on this. If anybody else did come up with this first, I haven't heard it or had anybody uh, bring it to my attention, and it is he is the first person I heard this from. And when I looked at it, I'm like, you know, what he did was take concepts that were out there and cohesively bring them together. So when I had this discussion, for instance, with Neil Franklin, who's my old business partner, um, and I started explaining it to him, he snapped to it right away, and he didn't have all eight in his wheelhouse. This is a very switched-on entrepreneur. This, this man won the Branson Award two years back-to-back. -back. only company ever won it twice was his company, Data Workforce, and he won it two years back-to-back. -back. So this, this guy switched on. He said, Jack, what you're talking about, of course he said it in his British accent, which I can't imitate at all, you're talking about soft values, mate. And we were talking about specifically things like the cultural capital of a company and the social capital of influencers in a company and the company itself, the intellectual capital that a company itself has these values within it that increase its overall value, its overall financial value. If you have solid cultural capital um, in a company, that means that people actually want to work for your company, not just for the money, but they actually want to be part of what you're doing. And we'll talk more about that when we get to cultural capital today. So th these are not things that kind of Ethan came up with individually. It's putting them together and understanding them. And of course, I have been 
doing this permaculture series for you guys. And I'm bringing this in as the final kind of anchor episode of that now six-part series. So we are going to talk about how these things play into how we design a property or how we design a farm or how we design a homestead. But I've said all the way through this, right, that permaculture can be used to design a business. Permaculture can be used to design a community. Permaculture can be used to design a lifestyle beyond the garden. That that's just one application of the principles of permaculture and the ethics of permaculture. So let's start out just with a reminder of where we started. The very first episode, the very first thing that we discussed, the prime directive and the three ethics. The prime directive is the only ethical decision is to take responsibility for that of ourselves and that of our children. And that goes well beyond the garden or the food forest or the farm or the homestead. If we're taking responsibility for our children, we need to be responsible for their education, their understanding of the world that they're going to live in, their ability to build spiritual capital within themselves, right? So that the next generation that we get to be grandparents of, our jobs may be a little easier, right? And we have more time than our children do when we're dealing with grandchildren usually, so we can be that kind of anchor force. But we want to send this so far, because remember what I said about our children, that doesn't mean the kids you have, It means everybody connected to you into the future. So long after I'm in the ground, I'm hoping that I've done the work in these areas that it's still being handed down by my grandchildren and my grandchildren's grandchildren for that of our children. So that is the only ethical decision, responsibility for ourselves and that of our children in all aspects, not just our ability to feed ourselves. Then we have care of the earth. So I've said this many times, but I'll say it again. If it hurts the planet, it's not permaculture. If it hurts the planet, it's not permaculture. So we can actually build a business. We can build a corporation. We can build a lifestyle around the ethic of we're going to do everything we can to not harm planet Earth. And that doesn't mean we never will. That, mean, that doesn't mean that sometimes we won't say, I really wish I didn't have to use this option, but it's what I have now. It means that we'll make a conscious effort to avoid it whenever it is reasonably possible to do so, and we'll move our life more and more toward that ethic. You have to look at the ethics in permaculture the way that most people look at things like a religion. Right? It's not a religion, but you look at it in the same way, in that I will do the best that I can to abide by these ethics, knowing as a flawed being I will fail at times. And then we go to care of, care of people, right? If you're hurting other people, it's not permaculture. Some people get weird around the third ethic we'll get to in a second. It's club of Rome. It's permaculture is actually to depopulate the planet. You're just you're just an idiot because if it if, if it harms people, it's not permaculture. You can't look at any of the ethics in absence of the other two. So we have to care for people. So in a company, even though you are buying a person's labor in a company, and even though you have to hold them to a standard, or your company will go bankrupt, even though at time You will have to be cruel. You have to follow Machiavelli in that if you are kind when you should be cruel, you'll end up being cruel when you should be kind. You still have to not harm people. You have to not abuse people. And so that's the case in how we run a farm, but it's also the case in how we run any business. And then we have controlling with self-regulation by setting limits to population and consumption. And this is where people get weird and say, it's eugenics, shut up. right? So if you don't do that, 
what you're saying is we can put as many people as we can stack shoulder to shoulder on an acre and still feed them off that same acre. That's all we're saying with that ethic, that we have to realize that only so much can come from this place before it's an extraction model. And so we have to return surplus. That's why the, that's why the different ways of phrasing the third ethic exist. Return of surplus, not distribution of surplus. That is, that is mining. Distributing surplus is mining. And it doesn't work, and it can't work, and it's not going to work, and it never has worked, and it looks like a stripping hole. Not a stripping, like take your clothes off and swim hole, a stripping hole, like a strip mining hole. Go look at one of those. That's what redistribution of surplus looks like. It looks like a giant scar on the planet. Reinvestment of surplus to the first two. That can only come through setting limits to our population and consumption based on an area or a system's carrying capacity. That's where we started, and that's where we're coming from today, in that we have to take these aspects of capital, which can be converted into currency and exchanged for other forms of capital, and grow and expand from a standpoint that we're going to be ethical in our actions, and at the same time be responsibility first for ourselves, and then for our children and all generations of them to follow. So let's start off with... Social capital. Social capital is one that I think is actually understood today better than it was 20 years ago. The reason for it is social media. Not only do people in general understand social capital better today than they did at any time in the, few, in the past, right? And one thing, I am starring anybody that puts all caps in the comments. Please do me a favor. Do not ask me what you should plant in Kentucky in Zone 6 in June in a show like this. Please, if you're going to ask me questions or ask me to comment on things, keep it to the topic of the show. When we do like the Friday shows and we're all over the map, I don't care what you ask. When we are focused, if, if you ask me a question like that or do I need a greenhouse to grow water chestnuts in Sheboyganville, Iowa, I, I don't know and I don't care when I'm doing a show like this, just for the record. All right, so social capital. Social capital is what we can do from a standpoint of our connections. In fact, if you think of each one of these, and this is what Ethan broke it down to, you have the capital in the form of social capital, and you have its currency. And its currency, he says, is connections. And then you take a capital, you build a currency off of it, something that can be spent, and then that complexes to something. right? So if we have money, right? we have gold, and we use it to create money, then we can use money to buy material capital. Okay? In this case, our social capital creates a currency known as our connections, how we're connected to other people, and that complexes to influence and long-term relationships. And I think the reason this is more understood today than it probably was even 20, 30 years ago by the average person and even the average company is due to social media. So right now, if you are a big-time influencer, there are brands that will pay you thousands or tens of thousands of dollars a month just to mention them a few times a month because they understand the power of that social capital. Now, the one interesting thing about capital is just about any form of capital can be used for good or for evil. It's like a gun or a sword. With a gun, I can... Harvest a deer and feed my family. I can defend the weak from the vicious. 
there's a lot of good I can do with a gun or a sword, right? However, if if I claim that I, I that having a gun doesn't give me the capability to do evil, right? If 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 I if I deny that, I'm in denial of reality. I'm in denial of reality. Of course, I can do evil with a gun, and with social capital, it's incredibly. See, money. When we think of any form of capital, the possession of capital is power. It's it's it, it is a power mechanism. It is a lever, and I can use a lever to push a stone into place as a keystone to build a building, or I can use a lever to press a, a, a boulder off the face of a cliff and do intentional or unintentional massive damage down grade of where the boulder goes. And you have to think about every form of capital like that. So that person that has massive social capital can get you to buy some garbage that you shouldn't be buying. Now, I think that's going to destroy the value of the capital long term. And I think there are a lot of people out there. And that's when you know you're mining. When you're utilizing your capital to do things that devalue the capital over time, you're mining. When you do things with your capital that are increasing the value of the capital over time, then you're farming. Farming good, mining bad, at least in this analogy. And social capital, I think, is the one place where people tend to really guard that capital, maybe better than they guard their financial capital, if it's earned properly, if it was earned ethically. If you're some celebrity that has handlers that just blahs, 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 blahs about whatever, right? And you do your thing and, you know, and you, you're a singer or an actor that pretends for a living or whatever it is, and you have a massive following just because of that, those guys tend to not really jealously guard their social capital. That's why they get in a lot of trouble. The person who builds social capital by being reliable to others over time, seldom intentionally or through pure stupidity, damages it. Usually it's just a mistake. And if they own it, it's recoverable. Social capital allows you to get things done. And so when we're building a homestead, you might say, well, how does that play out? Well, relationships with your neighbors is social capital. If you're going to produce a product for sale off of that homestead or farm, then social capital is your ability to reach a larger market. Or if you're going to start a farm, and I don't care how much you think you know from the Internet and courses and me and anybody else out there, and you move to a place with those other farmers, the smartest thing you could do at that point is reach out and find the oldest, most crotchety curmudgeon of an old farmer around you and, and, and develop a relationship with them because they have intellectual and experiential capital that we'll get to later, but you can't access it without social capital. And you'll find most of those guys are completely willing to tell you their advice. And you might not always follow it, but you know, when it's like how to get your tractor running or that fence is not going to hold in a bull, they're probably not wrong. So that's another way that we can leverage social capital. Social capital in our business is our ability to attract employees. It's our ability to connect with other businesses. It's our ability to influence the market. It's incredibly important. Next up, material capital. Material capital to me 
is anything I can touch that isn't alive. If it's alive, it's living capital. If I can touch it, like this little device here that turns lights on, which again, I didn't turn on. Let's go ahead and get the studio lights where they belong. Um, it's material capital of some form. And so this is something people tend to comprehend. Like if you have a homestead and you go out to your shop and up on some pegboard you have a whole bunch of hand tools, those would be material capital, and they're extremely valuable. And where you start to realize, how do we know a thing is capital? Can we, can we create a currency from it? Because we think money is capital. Money is not capital. The underlying value of the money is capital. The money, right, or I should say the currency, the dollar, right, is the currency. And it's used to, to so that it can be exchanged for other forms of capital. We can buy things with the currency. The money is what holds the underlying value. So material is really easy to understand because we can look at those tools, for instance, and we can say, hey, those tools have value. And they can be exchanged into multiple other forms of capital. If, if nothing else, I die. My kid looks at that shit and goes, I don't know how to use all that stuff. I don't care the old man did that. And he loads it all up in a, in, into cases, and he goes down to a shop. He could sell it for money and exchange the material capital for financial capital. But what else can it be exchanged into, right? If I have intellectual capital, I can use the tools to build things that create other forms of capital, right? And so every form of capital we're going to talk about today, one way or another, can be exchanged through its currency into another form of capital. In fact, you could almost buy any form of capital with any other form of capital if you're creative. You might have to go two layers to do it. Right? You, and people would say, well, you can't buy experience. But yes, you can. Of course you can. If I've never whitewater rafted before and I want to learn how to do it and I buy a guided trip with an experienced person, at the end of it, I've exchanged my financial capital for the experience. And then I've taken that experience and I've converted it into some level of intellectual capital because if I go do it again, I've seen it before. So now I'm building up this internal knowledge of intellectual capital and the experiential capital of how to do a thing, but it all started with financial capital and a desire to obtain the other two. So in any situation, if you ever wonder if you're looking at capital, can I exchange it into a form of currency in some manner, some form? So... When we look at material capital, we can look at the material's natural resource as the form of capital. And people think, well, there's not, not all material has natural resources. Some material is synthetic. No, it's all natural resources. Everything derived, I don't care if it's plastic like this little remote control I keep leaning on because it's right here. The plastic came from hydrocarbons in the form of petroleum, which originally began as some life form, carbon-based life form, that became petroleum that was then drilled out of the ground to make this thing. So this is a natural resource at its base. Everything is a natural resource at its base. Unless you're going to tell me it came from some other dimension we don't understand, if it came from material on planet Earth, it came from a natural resource. It's not an artificial resource, right? Because it exists. Iron comes from the earth. It's a natural resource. It is material capital. And we can turn it into a sword. We can turn it into a plow. But it's material capital. 
And we want to build up the material capital in our lives, in our businesses, and in our relationships. So what we have then is material capital in the form of its currency of natural resources, complexing the tools, buildings, infrastructure, anything that we can touch. Then we have financial capital. This is the one people think they understand. You must understand it because you use it all the time. <laughs> a lot of people use a lot of things they don't understand. How many of you guys use your smartphone, but you don't have the first clue how it actually works on the inside? And, and a lot of you are like, well, that would, that would be me. That would be me. I don't know how uh, the phone actually works, but I know how to work the phone. right? So if that's, if that's the case with your phone that you use all the time, then it's the case that you may not understand financial capital. Financial capital is whatever underlying value creates a spendable form of currency that we can then use to do financial instruments, securities, straight-up exchange of one thing to another, etc. So a long, long time ago, when your great-grandpa was young, the United States dollar as a form of currency, its underlying capital was gold. And I'm not going to put any judgments on this today. I'm just That's what it was. That's what it was. You had a dollar, and there was a certain fraction of gold available to back that dollar. Then we changed. We didn't change in 1913. That's just when the Federal Reserve took over handling that peg. We didn't change in 1933 under Franklin Roosevelt. Franklin just changed the ratio of gold backing. We didn't change initially under Nixon. We changed the second thing that Nixon did, where he completely decoupled the two 100%. And now the dollar is not backed by gold. It's backed by a promise to repay. We call that a debt. The debt, this is why our dollar is in trouble, right? So if you understand the dollar being backed by a material capital form of gold that we have now converted to financial capital by creating a financial currency against it, you can understand how that is relatively stable. Big advocate of Bitcoin talking to you right now. I think Bitcoin is a better form of capital Or money. And think of capital as the money and then the spendable derivative of it as the currency that comes up. Bitcoin's better, but gold is good. Gold is good because it's the governor of the government. However you use the term government. We can't just make more gold. We can dig deeper. We can mine harder. We can get more gold out of the ground. But there is a cap on how much gold we can create. Now, financial capital in our society, in the whole world today... The capital is a promise to repay or a debt. So we can create our own money then. Within permaculture, long before cryptocurrency, Bill Mollison came up with the concept of let's. If you open up your permaculture designer's manual to chapter 14, the one most permaculture teachers hate teaching the most, the one I like to teach the most, you'll see an entire legal structural framework to create very difficult to pierce entities of multiple entities cobbled together from all the state systems. It's the most anarchist thing you'll ever read, even though it's totally inside the system of government and nation states. It's how to use their shit against them. It's, it's a status jujitsu chapter of the book. And inside there, you'll see these diagrams that talk about all the way, all the things people need. And initially, you should be dealing only with your own entities. 
as local as possible. And only when you can't get something do you go outside. And within there, his proposal is, is wherever you can, instead of using dollars or euros or pounds or pesos, use let's. So these are local currencies that basically just do the accounting between your own entities. Today we have something more powerful. And I, honest to God, believe, folks, if Bill Mollison had written the Permaculture's Designer Manual today, Chapter 14 would say use cryptocurrency or use Bitcoin. I will not say where Bitcoin... Would, would Bill Mollison been a maxi or not? I don't know. Would he have been a Bitcoin maximalist? have no idea. Maybe he would have thought Monero was great because it was private. Maybe he would have thought something else was good because it was a lower energy front. Who knows? But it would be cryptocurrency because cryptocurrency has an advantage over a local currency in that it can be exchanged outside of that economy, which makes people more likely to take it inside the economy. So if, if you pay me with a promissory note for $5, right, whatever the hell that is in our currency, for my carrots, I have to hope that sometime in the next week or so, if I need to buy something, Somebody in my network will take that $5 let. But if you give me $5 of Bitcoin over Lightning, and I want to go buy coffee with it, I can. And it actually makes it more likely to stay in circulation inside the local economy. But that's financial capital. And I just because of everything I said, you might think, well, Jack thinks we should have all our financial capital in gold and silver and Bitcoin. Nope. Nope. The currency of the world right now is the dollar, and I hold a lot of wealth in that as well. And I think you should too. But it is, the important thing to understand is, it is the one that everybody talks about. It's the one that everybody focuses on today. But it's only one of the eight. And I think they all have equal value when you, when you look at them apportioned properly. So next up we have living capital. And to me, living capital, can I touch it or see it? even with a microscope. If I can touch it or see it, and it's not dead, it's living capital. And this takes things to a whole new level. So if I go into, and, and what Ethan Rowland says, living capital, its currency is carbon, nitrogen, and water. And it complexes to soil, living organisms, land, and ecosystem services. To me... Breaking it down to the person who doesn't get any of this and they still want to understand it as simply as possible. You move into a house. The house is a nice suburban house with a reasonably large yard for the suburbs, a half an acre. And it's pretty evenly split. And it's a, one of the best things you can have in a, in a uh, the suburban place is either the back of a cul-de-sac or a corner lot. Right, Because that way you get this really great apportioned uh, land lane. And you move into there, and it was just built yesterday. I mean, they, 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 they just took off the new, uh, shiny new stickers off the door and let you in. It was part of a developed neighborhood, and it was one of those where they go in and they bulldoze every tree to make things easier on themselves, and they build it. And you move into one, and on the next block over, your neighbor moves into one. And since there's five houses in the in the model, you know that you pick from, they, they're literally the same house. They happen to pick the same color brick and siding that you do. So the two houses look identical. You move in, and you get 
I don't even care about permaculture here to make this clear as day to everyone. You call up a landscape company and you say, I want you guys to come in here and I want you to do a mix of hardscape, which would be material capital, so decks and shit like that. And I want you to do living capital. So I want you to do trees, bushes, and stuff like that. And I don't care if it's food, right? Maybe it's a big, giant silver maple, whatever it is, right? I want you to make this place look off the hook awesome. And, I, and the only criteria I have is I want you to mainly base it on perennials so that over time they get bigger and stronger and healthier and there's not a lot of work for me to do. And 10 years later, you have gorgeous trees on your property and bushes and, and, and shrubs and some beautiful vines and things like that. Now, your neighbor called the same company and said, I don't want all that living shit, I got a water. But I like his pool and I like his deck. Build that for me. And now both houses go for sale on the same day in the same market at the same time. And, you know, Bill or Tom or Susan or Karen or Rachel is looking for a home. And they go to your house first. And there's big, beautiful 10-year-old trees. And there's these bushes, right, butterfly bushes. And butterflies are flying around them. They're living capital, too. And you've managed your soil well, and you you know she just looks, or he just looks, and realizes anything else I want to plant is going to grow beautifully here. And they go over to Bill or Sam or Tom's place. It's a, it's the real estate is like, you know, I this the same house. It's listed for a little bit less money. It it's, it look, the picture is the same. So you're like, oh yeah, let's go look at it. You go over there, and it's like a golf course. It's got the same deck and pool, no trees, no shrubs, no bushes, no vines. Which house is going to sell faster for more money? The one with more living capital. Because who, unless it's some weird person that wants a golf course lawn, or it's somebody that's married to doing their own ecosystem, right? Most people are going to be like, yeah, look at the trees. Look at the shrubs. Look at the fly, butterflies. Look at the birds. That's what people are going to want. Look at the shade that I get. Right? Look at the beauty. And they're going to know there was a massive time investment in that. That's living capital. And that's how somebody that has no idea of the things that we're talking about here with permaculture can still understand it. And that's how you can see that they intrinsically understand it because people will pay more for it. Sometimes they don't even know why. They're just like, this is just so much of a nicer place. So we can take that into business. If I was in conventional business and I was building out a business campus, like some of the companies I worked for and sold to... Oracle's an example. They have a huge campus in Arlington. And, uh, man, I would plant as many trees, bushes, vines, shrubs. I would make the property as valuable as possible because it's an asset of the business. The people in the business are living capital. If you have a farm, you think, okay, well, I look out there and I see all my stuff growing. That's living capital. But all the soil organisms. Healthy soil is the most valuable thing a farm can have. So those little microbes you can't even see are one of your highest dollar values in your true balance sheet of your living capital. Next up, you have intellectual capital. The currency of intellectual capital is ideas and knowledge, things that you know. And that complexes into words, images. Intellectual property would be a word that we use in the business world. So we might have the ability to um, to do a thing with software. And we have the code to do that with. And that's our code and we own it. 
there's value in that code. And again, we can exchange it into other forms of capital. And the most easy one to understand is exchanging it into financial capital. So if I have this code, and let's say that even if you could, like there was no law, there was no copyright or license for the code, it's just, it's there, but it won't work. There's some key. And this is actually what I think is a better solution to, you know, should we have information um Owned and possessed. Should we should we be able to say that a person can't use a piece of knowledge that that they learn about? I, I don't agree with that. But if you build computer code, it, it's very possible for you to put things in that code that says unless you have a key to unlock the code, you can't use the code. So you can basically license code without the government. Because I'm all for writing government out of everything that we can. And now you look at my website and it does this thing, whatever it is. Or my process systems in my manufacturing facility. And the manufacturing system uses AI and it, it does all these wonderful things to build widgets. And you're like, I want that. You can come to me and say, look, I want to use it. And I can say, this is how much it is to, to buy it from me, either permanently or on a, a contractual basis or whatever. And we can convert that intellectual capital in the form of some form of computer code into financial capital, which I can then use to go out and buy, let's say, more material capital to expand my farm or my operation or my plant. And, 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 and that is one way of understanding intellectual capital. But TSPC, the Survival Podcast, right? The greatest value I think the show has is my intellectual capital. And it's not something that's written down in hard code. It's the fact that I can sit here after doing this for this long, and then you guys come in on a Friday when I let you ask off-the-wall questions, and you can ask me some something that I have no preparation done for at all, and I can be like, oh, yeah, here, this, 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 and this, right? That's part of why you tune in. So, And then we've actually taken all the information that I have know and learned and spoken about And all the information that my guests have come on and explained. And all the information the expert counsel have done. We put it all on a server, unlimited. You can download it, listen to it, peruse through it. It's huge intellectual capital that I give away for free. And part of the people have asked me, you know, why do you do that? Why don't you just like make like the most recent 50 episodes and then put it behind a paywall or something like that? And the reason is I actually believe that it is a... It is the mark of a psychopath to hoard knowledge. I, I don't think there's anything wrong with saying, I expect to be paid for what I do in a value-for-value value exchange. I, I don't think there's any problem with that at all. However, I think to have knowledge that can help people and to lock it all away only for a fee, only for a price, holds humanity back, holds society back. It's not taking care of people. It's not taking care of the earth. It's not returning your surplus. Right? It's not investing your surplus to the end of the first two. It's not being responsible for yourself and your children. So I give away everything all the time. And I think that is important. And I think that's actually what's built up the value of TSPC. But it's not just my intellectual capital or my guests or my expert panel. How many of you have learned something that has made your life better because of somebody you met in a chat, in a forum, on social media, 
in real life at one of our events somewhere that the actual value of intellectual capital exchange had nothing directly to do with me. It was completely and totally, um, completely and totally based on somebody else. My connection was indirect. You met them because the Survival Podcast was a common nexus where you guys came together. You were in Telegram and you said, hey, I have this problem. What do I do? And somebody said, here's what you do. And then you did it and it worked. I'm sure many of you have had that experience. That's the intellectual capital of the Survival Podcast community. And when you're building a business, you want as much of that as possible. And most businesses in our society today are incapable of doing it. I used to consult for them, so I know. What they would always say is stuff like, Will, we want to go viral, but we want to control the message. Okay, so you're stupid and I can't help you. I'm sorry. I know that sounds harsh, but it's true. I want to go viral and I want to control the message. I don't want people saying things I don't like about me. No, it doesn't work that way. And it's also not viral if you control it. It's bullshit. It's propaganda. It's crap. That's what it is. Period. It's, it's, there's, there's nothing in it that's viral or organic or real. But it all stems from that intellectual capital when it is. The knowledge of things and what to do and how to do them. Which leads straight, straight from intellectual capital into experiential capital. Its currency is action. It's action. And that complexes to the embodied experience or true wisdom. You can know exactly how to do a thing from a standpoint of, tell me how to do it, right? Tell me how to sharpen a knife. You can tell somebody the angle, the speed, the amount of pressure, what kind of stone. If you're using a wet stone, how to use water. If you're using an oil stone, how to use oil. You can know everything about sharpening a knife. doesn't mean you can sharpen a knife. You can memorize every step and every contingency of doing something as complex as a heart transplant. You don't have to go to medical school. I promise you there is a cut and paste by the numbers way to do a heart transplant. There's a textbook that lays it out as clearly as an Army technical manual lays out how to replace a starter motor in a Humvee. Period. And you can memorize it. And you can have a cardiologist who's done a thousand surgeries grill you. And if you've memorized it, you can answer every question where the guy's like, gee, I wish you were my resident, until you try to pick up a scalpel and you've never done it before. You'll only be able to do a thing well by developing the experience that goes with the knowledge. And there's little things that only experience will do. Back a long, long, long time ago when Jack Spirico was really young and dumb, one of the first things I got into in telecom was fiber optics. And back then, we had to take every fiber optic cable and strip the stuff off, the, the, the covering off of it, down to the cladding and core. And then we put it through a, a ceramic uh, connector with UV uh, adhesive. We put it under a UV light, and then we took it out, and it had a piece of glass sticking out the end of the connector. And we took a little tiny tool made out of diamonds, and we scored the glass, and we pulled it off. And then we took that, and we put it through a thing called a puck, and we used really 
really fine sandpaper. It's not really what it's called, but think of it that way. And you make figure eights. And you start with one grade, just like sanding a piece of wood. A coarse, which is really fine. A medium, which is really, really fine. And an extremely, extremely fine. Right? Film. And we make these figure eights. And as you do it, you look through this microscope. Little microscope. You pick up and you see the conductor, the cladding. There's no conductor. The cladding in the core. Right? The core is where the light goes through. The cladding is what keeps the light inside the core. Two different grades of glass. And you'd look at it, okay, that one's done enough, you go to the next one. And then you look at it, you go, that one's done enough, you go to the next one. And when you first learn how to do it, you know exactly what to do. Somebody teaches you, you know what to do. It will take you a long time to do one. And then you do it for a time and you build the experience. And you don't even look at it in the middle film anymore. You, you do the first one and you feel it and you go, I think we're there. And you look, yep, we're there. Or no, there's a little thing that needs to be worked out of that. Okay, there. Middle one is just boom, 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 boom. And then the final one is ba ba bam. And you look at it and you're done. And I would, I would do them in less than a minute a connector. If it was a, if it was a shitty one, something went wrong. If it was well done with the scoring and the pull off, I could do it in 30 seconds. And then you teach somebody. They can't do it. And they, they sit there and they struggle with one. You pick it up and you go, boom. And there's just a touch. That touch is what separates the apprentice from the master in any skill set. And that's your experiential capital. And that's why you'll pay somebody more to be your surgeon when your life's on the line or your future, whether you're going to be paralyzed or not, because they have more experience. That's why you're like, you know what, I understand you're a teaching doctor and you're going to have your fellowship people with you or your interns or whatever, and that's fine. I want your hand on the scalpel. Like, you can use somebody, I'm paying for, I, no. But you're buying that experience. You're buying that touch. You're buying the fact that when he moves that nerve ending, he's not going to paralyze you. You're, you're, you're paying someone to come in and do... A, a, a consultation as a permaculturist, even though you've ingested everything that I teach for free, and yet you're like, I don't want to make expensive mistakes, so I'm going to hire Nick Ferguson to come out to my property and talk to me first, because he has experiential capital. In your business, it is one of the most valuable things you can have, is to have employees that don't just have knowledge, but they have experience. They know how to take care of your customers. Because that's what keeps your customers coming back. And the thing about having intellectual capital coupled with experiential capital is now you can do the most important thing that you can do as an asset inside an entity. Teach. Teach. And I don't have the super high opinion of it because it's what I do. I have a super high opinion of it because it's valuable. Like, if I'm hiring someone and they can do a thing... Well, that's good. If they can do it well, and they do it so well, that when I put other people with them with less experience, that they bring up the performance of the person next to them, I will pay them more. I will do anything I can to put that person in my organization. I do not want that person working for my competitor, because they are a force multiplier. See, if you're good at what you do, but that's it, and you go work for my competitor, I don't care, you're one. If you're great at what you do and you go work for my competitor, I'm less happy. I'm less happy, but it's not that big a deal because you still won. If you're great at what you do 
and you're a gifted teacher, you can take your intellectual knowledge and your experience, combine them, and make other people as good or close to as good as you. Especially if they can make the next person good. Now I don't want you going to my competitor. Because you're like a positive microbe. Every time you split in half, you split in half again, and you split in half again. I want that. I want those good microbes in my soil. Right? If I have one good microbe in my soil, it does me no good. But if I have a good microbe that has an environment where it can reproduce, that can transform an entire ecosystem. It works with microbes. It works with people. And with people, it comes from experience and knowledge combined. People often say things like, would you rather learn from somebody who, or do you rather, would you rather learn from someone who knows or learn by experience? It's a trick question. You, you, you really want somebody who knows to help you learn. But you don't know until you, you apply the experience. You need both. Next, spiritual capital. Um, Ethan defines this as prayer, intention, faith, and karma. And that it complexes, so that's its currency. The currency of spiritual capital would be something like prayer, or intention, or faith, or karmic. And then you get spiritual attainment as you're complexing, what it, what it becomes. To me, spiritual capital is something we can stumble on really hard if we don't clear the way for, let's say, the atheist to be part of it. Spiritual capital is not limited to your belief in a specific deity. Spiritual capital is about man's connection to the larger universe. And if you explain that through what we would call a real revealed religion, Judaism, uh, Islam, Christianity, Buddhism, Hinduism, fine. I'm not here to touch anybody's religious faith at all. If you're more of a deist like me, in other words, you believe there is some higher intelligence that play in the universe, but you don't know what it is, fine. If you are an atheist and you say, I believe in pure evolution and pure uh, the pure concept that the universe simply became what it was through natural law, and I'm just a piece of that, you could still have spiritualism within yourself. Because the human spirit is what makes us different than some automaton. Right, There is something in us that makes us unique. If you think about it, what would be more identical than two people that literally were formed as identical twins from a common egg that split and they are genetically identical? Right down to have the same fingerprints. You could swap their kidneys out, no problem. Right, if you, you're, there's no risk of rejection, they're genetically identical. The body can't even tell the difference. Anybody here ever know twins that were very different people, like all of them? They'll have a certain amount of similarity, but they're very in, independent beings. To me, that's their spirit. And you can say, well, it's you know, it's it's their environment that they grew up in. And, you know, if you have two twins that grow up in the same house, go to the same schools, have the same friends. They're going to be more alike, but they're not the same as people. So there is the experiential pathway that determines a lot of how we turn out. But I've known twins that spent their whole life growing up together, and they were very different people. 
Very, very different people. I think I'm thinking of two that uh, I grew up in, in high school with. And even back in high school, long before they kind of went their own way out into the world, they looked alike. But, I mean, the second you talked to one of them, you knew, oh, this is Justin. This is Justin. This is not his brother. Right? Like, you knew immediately. And and they, they you know, this was like early in high school. They, they dressed alike. They wore their hair the same and all. They did it because they could mess with people, right? But you, when you were their friend, you knew. By senior year, they were in their hair different and kind of like trying to define themselves as different people. It stopped being so fun. But in the end, they were always different people. That's spirit. And I think that is if you want to develop spiritual capital, then what you need to learn to be is okay with silence and contemplation. I think there is a place for, the best word I have for it is meditation. It doesn't necessarily mean monitoring your breathing and you know sitting in a lotus position or, or, or something like that. Meditation is being mindful of that which we are generally mindless about. When I'm outside sometimes, I'll just stop. I'll just stop. You know, my, my friends were over this weekend, and my wife agreed with them when they said it's amazing to look that way on the property. And it was only five years ago we planted some of these trees, and there's now some black locust trees that are 35, 40 foot tall. And it's, it's, it's blossom season. It's huge white blossoms towering over all the other trees. And there's times where I'll see that, and I'll just stop, and I'm amazed by it. That... All of the living processes on the planet and the property and all the work that I've done have accumulated in this massive piece of living capital. And I'll watch it sway in the wind. And if you think about it and you let yourself feel the connection, you can almost feel the hair on your arm moving in conjunction with that tree swaying. To me, that's a very spiritual moment. Watching young livestock immediately know what to do to me is a very spiritual experience if you allow it to be. And finding people that you have true common ethos with and developing that community is also a very spiritual connection to other people and other beings. And I think that we need to focus on building spiritual capital into our lives, into our homesteads, into our families, into our communities, into our businesses. We, we can have a spiritual capital inside a company that knows no boundary of religion or faith. And we can have this guy sitting over here that is a practicing Christian, this guy over here that's an atheist, this guy over here that's kind of an agnostic deist like me, this person over here that's a Hindu, and we can all have a common spirituality in addition to our religion and faith. That's my belief anyway. And then we have cultural capital, which is hugely overlooked and incredibly valuable, and unfortunately, I think that government tries to force, force us to see value in cultures, cultural capital that maybe we don't. Cultural capital is unique. In Roland's work, he says that its currency is song, story, and ritual. And, and I think this is actually a way to take some of the religion separate from the spiritual component of spiritual capital. Because there might be that the song, the story, and the ritual is a religion. What What is Christianity if it's not based on song, story, and ritual? Right? Or any faith. 
just Christian is the most common one in the United States, right? So there's that. I have never been to church, anybody's church, whether it was growing up Ukrainian Catholic or being in Roman Catholic services or Protestant services like like Method. I've been to Methodist church. I've been to Baptist church. I've been to Lutheran church. I've never been to one where there wasn't saying. Never. The entire concept of the sacraments in the Catholic Church and in other churches is ritual. The Mass itself is a ritual, right? And the story. Like I said yesterday when we were talking about stories and the power of telling stories, the Bible is a book of stories. So the Christian faith can both be something that would be seen as spiritual capital, and that's what's derived from it, and cultural capital in sharing across borders or sharing across people with a common culture. And, there, you know, I no longer go to church, and you won't see me in one unless I'm there for a wedding or a funeral probably. I don't apologize for it. It's just who I am. And if you go, God bless you. But that doesn't mean I don't see value in it. Outside of the religion itself, I will tell you that where I grew up in Pennsylvania, almost everybody was in that church on Sunday because of that they all knew each other. And there was a bond, a cultural bond, that was held sacred by the community of cultural capital. But there was way more than that. There was a culture in that any family that was a coal mining family had a culture, an ethic of hard work and sacrifice. It's one of the most brutal jobs you can do. You get out in farming communities, there's a cultural capital amongst farmers, even conventional ones. We think so often that we're unique. We're not. But within a company, right, one of the things about cultural capital in a company is it can actually make a person want to work for that company, to where that company can compete for the best talent with less. A perfect example of this, and it was sad to see it destroyed by Yahoo, though it did make Mark Cuban a billionaire, so I'm sure he's okay with it. Mark Cuban built a company. It started out, it was called AudioNet. And it became Broadcast.com. And then... Yahoo bought it and ruined it. And because of that, people think that it was just part of the dot-com boom and that it didn't have any real value. It had incredible value. What they did was before anybody knew how to do it, before there was podcasting, they would go to a radio station and go, hey, do you want to broadcast on the Internet? And since it was just audio, even dial-up speeds, it worked. It might be a lag, but it worked well. It played well. And people started realizing in these radio stations, like, you know, and it, it all started with basketball. That Cuban's a huge basketball fan, and he wanted to listen to Indiana Pacer games here in Dallas. He couldn't do it. He thought, hey, if I put it on the Internet, I can just, like, get this AM radio station that covers the Pacer games on the Internet, and then I can listen to the games. And, and these radio stations, especially, it was mostly talk radio in the beginning, less music and more talk, realized, like, there's people that move. And they missed the morning show with their DJs that they like. And again, this is before podcasting. And what Broadcast.com was rows and rows and rows of these servers. And they would pick up the phone and they would call a radio station, their salespeople, and say, hey, do you want to do this? And if they said yes, they would get them with their engineers and there would be a whole tech team that would make it all happen. And in the end, it was you plug this thing in and AM 660 or 540 or whatever you know, Toronto, Dallas, whatever, was on the Internet. And they were very good at it. And that was the value of the company. And Yahoo had no idea what they bought. They bought it because they had lots of money in stock and they could spend it, and then they destroyed it. 
But there was something really valuable there, cultural capital. It was one of those first companies that you went to work for them, and you kind of did your thing, and if you got your job done, nobody bothered you. They had ping pong tables and pool tables and stuff like that all over the place. You walked into it, and the sales guys were sitting there flipping coins in the air and talking and having fun and doing their job. And when they took a break, no one said, hey, man, is it your break time? They just went and took their break. If they made their quota, nobody bothered them. Nobody bothered them. The tech people, same kind of thing. As long as they got their jobs done, no problems. You walked in that place, and it buzzed with energy and happiness. Everybody that worked there was happy. And it was a common ideal. If we do this right, the whole goal of that company was to do a buyout, to sell. And they knew that, too. And they built this incredible culture. And people wanted to work there. And if you were like interviewing for a job and you kind of thought you wanted to go there and you didn't know this but you walked in when you walked out you were like man I hope they make me an offer because how many of you guys go to work every day and you're like well here I am back in hell right how, how, how do you think it would feel if you walked into a place and there was such a positive culture that you wanted to be there if you're the kind of person you don't generally hang out with people you work with, I've always been that way. And the, the higher I went, the more it became true because it creates conflict. But even when I was mid-level, lower level, I didn't go drinking with people I worked with. I didn't go hang out at the bar with people. I, even in the army, I, you know, the, the guys I knew were like in other units and stuff like that mostly. But that's because, you know, how strong is the culture? How would it be if you went to a place where you wanted to invite five of your coworkers over once a, once a month to have a barbecue in your backyard. You actually wanted them there. Like, would you want to work in a place like that? That's cultural capital. It's not just, hey, we are all bound by this common religion or this common, you know, ethnicity or whatever. Or this, like, you know, there's regional cultures too, right? That are, that they, they, they cross those borders. Like, in, in West Virginia, they have a black walnut festival. Like That's literally a part of their culture. Food is a part of culture, etc. And you want to build this into your life, your community, your family. In fact, what it complexes to in Ethan's work is community. So culture is, cultural capital is the capital. The currency is the song, the story, the ritual, the things that are done. And the end result is community. Now, when we look at all eight of these put together, you start to see how they're all equally important. If you have a lot of financial capital but no social capital, it's only going to be a matter of time before you spend your money and you don't have any more. If you have social capital, you can continue to build and your financial capital becomes stronger in time. If you have good experiential capital... You always have the ability to earn a living and gain financial capital. If you have strong intellectual capital, but you don't have the experience to go with it, you have to gain the experience to make yourself actually marketable. If you have good spiritual capital, you're a very balanced person. And that's what I think spiritual capital is really about. How balanced as a being are you? That's why I think it spans all religions, faiths, or lack thereof. But if you have a good balance to yourself... Like, we've all met people that when you have a conversation with them, you're like, wow, this person really is centered. They're a lot smarter than I thought they would be. They have a great grasp. 
but they don't have anything in their life as far as stuff. And I don't mean like stuff to the point of just being stupid with it, but like they're literally trying to figure out how they're going to eat the next day. Where if they applied that, that spiritual balance, along with some level of skill set and marketability, they would be able to have that, they would be able to have that balance across all areas, not just in one place. And so we talked about all these things with permacultures. We went through this series. Gardens, right? We talked about how to grow food. We talked about the layers of the forest. We talked about all this stuff. But what is it without balance? What is it without connection? What is it without the ability to take one thing and convert it to another thing? It's just a bunch of ideas in a book. And it can't really be used to design a better life, to design a better community, to design a better family, to design a better company. But when we bring this into it, it's the key. Like I talked about, we could, we could build computer code that has an activation key. I don't have to have any legal protection whatsoever. Without the key, it won't work. You don't have the secret sauce. You can raw code it from the beginning and make it do the same thing, but you've made your own thing. You haven't really, you can't cut and paste my code. You need the key. The eight forms of capital are the decryption key of permaculture. If every time we're going to do a thing, the first thing we say is, what, what, am I, what am I creating and what am I using to create it? I'm creating living capital and I'm using financial and material capital to create it. Okay, so I'm, I'm spending the financial capital. It's going to go away. It's going to be gone. It's spent. It's converted. What I have left better have value equal to it or I've lost my energy on it. That's what we call in permaculture, an energy audit, right? And then how long will it produce? So if I use financial capital to acquire material capital, to build a garden, to plant living things into, and it doesn't pay me back in year one, it's okay. Does it pay me back in time? Yes, it does. And then I've actually made a good investment, I've taken the financial investment into a material investment into a living capital investment that pays dividends for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. And it's, it's a lot like I bought this bond and it pays annual interest for the next 40 years. Except now I haven't gone from financial to something else. I've just made a financial investment in a financial asset. Where when I invest in living capital, it takes on a life of its own. It's not constrained by parameters that were artificially put on it like a bond. The bond pays an interest rate that the entity issuing the bond wants it to pay and has a term that is limited by the entity issuing the bond in return for your financial consideration. Right? A tree doesn't care. It's going to grow if you give it what it needs. And it will some way or another reproduce. Outside my window, unfortunately, way too close to the house, and eventually I'm going to bite the bullet and cut it down, there is a mulberry tree. And its stock is now bigger than my forearm. I cannot get my hand around my forearm. I can barely get two hands around this mulberry. It is mulberries on it. It is beautiful. I didn't plant it. Either I went and picked some mulberries and one was kind of rotted or something and I flipped it off of my, uh, my outdoor kitchen uh, shelf or one of the birds ate a mulberry and crapped. I don't know, but right outside my window is this massive mulberry tree. I do know that it came from one of the other mulberry trees on the property. 
Based on its structure and its leaf form, I'm pretty sure it's a black mulberry that's planted at the back corner of my orchard. That tree I planted eight years ago. Four years ago, this tree popped up out of the ground and I let it grow. I should have spotted it, dug it up, and moved it while I had a chance. But that return on the original investment is unlimited. Because how many trees can that one tree eventually create? And the answer is unknown. But we know it's in the thousands. We know it's in the thousands. So when we invest into living capital, our yield is theoretically unlimited. And somebody's mentioning obtain a yield. This is one or more of the eight forms. Is this one or more of the eight forms of capital? Obtain a yield is a permaculture principle. But it stems from what we're talking about. It stems from... Okay, we got rid of that. Um, it stems from investing other forms of capital to the end of producing living capital. Right? So let's take some stuff. I only got seven starts, so if you want me to comment on anything else, now would be the time to get it up there while you can. Let's see what we have here. Emily says, yesterday's show would... Physical and non-physical products be the same as goods and services, or did I miss something? I'm going to consider that actually applying to today. Uh, is would be non-physical all be services? Not necessarily. Well, yeah and no. Tax-wise, if I'm selling you software, I can sell it as a service, so I don't have to charge sales tax on it. If it's I'm in a state that doesn't tax a service but does tax a good, as long as I don't ship a disk, right? It's a service. Um, so it depends on how you want to break that down. But I think if you want to tie it into today, when we have physical, we have material capital, right? And then all of our other forms of capital are some form of non-physical capital, right? Like living capital is a form of material capital. It's just the next stage of it. Um, yeah, I guess you could divide it that way if you really wanted to. Ah. Yeah, see, we're, we're getting these questions that have nothing to do with today, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to entertain them anyway, because I know who's asking, and they do a lot of good around here, so I'll, I'll give them some leeway. K-Bonk says, any sole proprietor business tips? Yeah, don't do business as a sole proprietorship. Form an S-Corp or an LLC eventually. Um, though a sole proprietorship is fine initially. I, I really don't understand the question, dude, uh, especially as it pertains to today. Um <clears throat> Moving on, Christopher says, question for Jack. If you can answer in future episodes, since this is off topic today. Nope. Done. Uh, EB, how do you manage the lack of privacy as a figure, a public figure? Nope. Uh, Jim's Garden, hmm, gold was to cash as Bitcoin is to lightning. Have to bail, just didn't want to lose that thought. I think there's some truth to that. Is lightning Bitcoin's currency? And I think in a way it is. I also think there's room for Bitcoin to be the capital and the currency to be something like a dollar. And I think that we can choose the currency that we change a form of capital into. Good point there. Uh, Zachary says, my broody hen just had some chicks. Not sure if I should sequester them away from the rest of my flock. Why would you? Because the bird flu? They were born on your property. I, I wouldn't, other than, you know, are they going to be attacked by your flock? But if you're worried about bird flu, I wouldn't. Jonathan says, I was looking for wilderness survival content around 10 years ago and stumbled across TSP, instantly hooked. Can't remember exactly what the heartfelt message was, but I remember the tears I shed. 
That's cultural capital. That's spiritual capital. That's a big part of, of how we're able to do what we do with the Survival Podcast is hitting those emotions means that you're making a connection with people in um, a higher level. Uh, THP3 Free, do you believe in building spiritual capital examples, living your life with kindness, caring, compassion, and generosity? Yeah, I believe in building... I, I, again, that's one of those questions like, it's on target, but I don't really get it. Of course, I believe in building it. If I didn't believe in building it, I wouldn't talk about it. But I, I guess if you mean, how do you build spiritual capital? Can you consciously build spiritual capital? I believe you absolutely can. And I think karma is real. Now, there's two ways to look at karma. There's karma in the true metaphysical world that literally by doing a good thing, you create some feedback loop that is guaranteed through some universal spirit to come back to you in that spiritual realm or a bad thing you're going to have to deal with in the future. That's up to you whether you believe that or not. But I believe that karma in our world is real because if you're a dick to people, they're going to be a dick to you. And if you're good to people in general, people will be good to you. Does that mean that if you're good to people in general, nobody will be a dick to you? Of course not, right? Even if they know you're a good person, some people are just assholes, right? But in general, people that do a lot of good, right, get a good karmic return. They also see, and this is where none of these can be really seen in isolation. We, I want you to think about this like an ecologist. We will take apart an ecosystem to better understand it. But apart, it doesn't really function. So if we were to take a forest, and in that forest one of the creatures we have crawling around in the underbrush is a dung beetle. Right? The dung beetle is a thing. And we can call that, give it a Latin name, dungus beetleus, whatever the hell they're called, right? And we can say, here it is. This is a dung beetle. So we take the dung beetle, We go into a completely isolated room, no forest, no dung, no dirt, no soil, no leaves, no trees. Put the dung beetle in there and go, do your thing! It doesn't know what to do, it gets confused, it can't hide anywhere, it can't be a dung beetle, it can't eat, and it dies. Right? But you put him back in the forest and he knows what to do. That's how all these forms of capital are. Living capital is valuable... But in of itself, it's just one piece of our design. Material capital is just things and stuff. When we combine material and living capital together, then we start to see true dividends. Spiritual capital is just the things that we believe, our intention, our faith, our karma, in of itself and isolated. But I don't even think one can obtain spiritual capital in isolation. I don't think one can have any form of enlightenment and isolation from the living world and the cultures of the world. And even the material of the world, even the rock has energy, if you want to go to that level. I won't take you there today, but, but I believe that. Uh, Jack caught two in a row. Nice. I think about these often. Thanks, Humble Mechanic. Uh, big brain content says, so you, you be saying living capital is the end goal. Um, I don't know if it's the end goal. It's a goal. It's one of the highest goals is the creation of living capital. Because living capital exceeds your capacity to live. When you have children, 
your genes are going forward at least one more generation. If they have children, another generation. If you have enough children and enough grandchildren for the foreseeable future of humanity, there'll be a little Spearco or a little Smith or a little Tommy or whatever running around. right? And so when we do, when we build forests, forests make more forests. And our impact is felt longer due to what we do with living capital than just about anything else. Except that's not always true. To be or not to be. Who doesn't know those words? It's Is that intellectual capital? Maybe. Is it cultural capital? Maybe. Is it both? Probably. But the words act like a living being and that they've continued because they're so iconic and so well-known because of Shakespeare. So there are things we can do that can live for centuries or millennia. But in general, the average person's quickest path to immortality is through living capital. If you define immortality as the thing you did continuing to affect the future long after your dust. It's not the only way, but it's the most immediate path in that direction. See if we got anything else. My question was in regards to starting a social media business podcast as a second form of income. I don't know the first comment you mean, but um, I think it's a great application of these forms of capital we talked about today. Creating a content-based, social media-based podcast business, sure. Uh, If you want to clarify that, EB, I'll try to hit you as we work through the last few here. Have you ever looked at septic tank aerators for aquatic systems? Not related to today's episode. <laughs> not worried about... So this is about the, the chickens earlier. They're not. Zach says he's not worried about disease, just abuse in the rooster and other hens uh, falling danger because the coop is off the ground. I'm not one of the chicken Nazis with the fluke. So, so yeah, I, you got to be careful. Young birds, if they don't have parents... They don't have a mama hen. You want to be strategic about when you finally introduce them to the flock. And my, again, we're off topic, but my my intellectual capital and my experiential capital have taught me the best way to introduce your new chickens to your old chickens is wait till your old chickens are going to sleep on their perches. Take your baby chickens and put them in the coop on the perches too, in the dark, once the chicken's going to chicken coma. And when they wake up in the morning, the little chicken brain's like, I, I, I guess they might still have some pecking order to work out. But in general, they're like, eh, I guess you were always here. Um, that's that's the best I can do for you on that one. Anyway, guys, I hope you enjoyed today's show. And I want you to really think about how you can apply the eight forms of capital in your life, on your homestead, your farms, your, you know, if you're more of a ranching business, how can you apply this to, you know, if you look at, let's look at Greg Judy with sheep, Right? You know, and he's producing lambs as a product for sale primarily. How much of his operation is living capital? And you look at it and say, well, Jesus, like the whole thing, like the microorganisms, the grass, the land he manages, land he owns and manages, land he just manages, the sheep themselves, right? A product is alive when it's sold. But what's the real value of Greg Judy's operation? Is it in the combination of intellectual and spiritual capital that empower the living capital? Do you think if, if someone was just handed all the land and all the sheep and all the infrastructure that Greg has right now that he makes incredibly profitable, but they didn't know anything, 
And they said, go ahead. You, you now are a sheep farmer, sheep rancher. How long would it be before the whole thing was just screwed up out the butt? Not long. They all interplay. That's the big lesson today. Hope you guys get that. Anyway, with that, we have wrapped up this series. There will not be a part seven of this series. Doesn't mean we won't talk about permaculture again. Uh, again, tomorrow, if you want to tune in, we will have a live stream again. Joel Valenzuela, jeez, tongue-tied Jack. Joel Valenzuela will be here to talk to us about growing financial censorship around the world as well as rampant inflation. And uh, we'll have a great discussion on that tomorrow. Uh, as we wrap up, let me remind you guys, you like the show and the work that I do, there's two ways you can support us. Well, there's actually three. You're here in uh, YouTube land right now. You can send me a super chat over uh, over YouTube comments if, if you, uh, you want to do that. I appreciate that when people do it. You can also join the Member Support Brigade. Go to the survivalpodcast.com, click on Members to learn more about that. Or you can do your online shopping at tspaz.com. If you do your online shopping at tspaz.com, no matter what you buy, you help support the show and the work that we do. And if I have it on tspaz.com, I own it, I bought it, I'd do it again, or I wouldn't recommend it. Uh, what I have for you right now and today on my item of the day is one of the most valuable things on my homestead. In fact, one day I should do an article, just a short article, little snippets, and link to the 10 most valuable things on my homestead that you can acquire for yourself as a material capital purchase. And I guarantee you this one will be on the list. It's the Century 24-hour mechanical timer. They're like eight bucks a piece. And basically this is a thing that will turn things on and off at a frequency of 15 minutes. So you can turn something on for 15 minutes a day and off for the rest of the day. You can turn something on for 15 minutes every hour. You can turn something on for 15 minutes every fourth hour. You can turn things on for one hour a day or one hour every fifth hour. Anything you can come up with. It is basic automation, ones and zeros, on and off. I use these things like freaking crazy. I don't do, people are like, how do I make a bell siphon with aquaponics? And my answer to that is, don't. Don't do it. No, don't do it. Do your ebb and flow like I do. Use a timer. Water comes in one bulkhead, goes out another. That sets the level. Timer goes off. Water goes back through the pump. It never fails. I, I used to have stuck siphons all the time. I started using it. No problem. Lights. I have plant starting systems. I want the lights on 14 hours a day. I push down 14 hours. Click, turn it, done. I hate timers. Do you know office space with the, with the copy machine, the printer, load... PC load letter, right? What, what the hell is that? And they smash the printer. I feel that way about printers, copying machines, and timers. Except for this one. It's so easy. Anybody can do it. Even me. Check it out again. The Century 24-hour mechanical timer. I will tell you, the only thing that happens to these things is when they get used a long time, especially outside, they will wear out. But they're 8 bucks to replace. And I have found, when they get sticky... If you squirt a little bit of WD-40 inside them and turn them, they usually unstick and they will work for another year or two before you actually have to replace them. With that, I have wrapped up yet another episode of the Survival Podcast. Hope you enjoyed the day again. Check in tomorrow if you want to know about financial censorship and what you can do about it. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. You pull yourself up, they keep bringing you down. Are they gonna bail you out or just run you around? They said.
Revolution.